0: Alright, well material planning process is where we are and, and we do have a lot of things to talk about today that will make very, very good questions for your final exam. So uh, I realize we get close to the end here and you get excited about us being close to being at the end. but don't like get so excited about Thanksgiving and Santa Claus coming and all of that, that that uh, you you kind of blow off what it is that, that we're going to talk about today because there are some technical elements in our discussion today that you want to make sure that you, you understand. We are talking about the MRP process, at least at this point. In a moment here, we'll talk about some other uh, methods, but When we look at the way that a system will engage in planning materials, there are in fact three different ways that we can use the system to assist us in managing materials. One of the ways that we can do this is consumption-based planning. And we talked a little bit about consumption-based planning previously, but we wanna get a little bit more specific about that in our time together today. Uh, Consumption-based planning is very, very useful when we have history to draw upon so consumption based planning is based on historical consumption and it generally works very very well for products that are not varied in their demand or in their usage. You know, if we know that for a particular product every month we're going to sell between 25,000 and 27,000 units, we can use that in our planning calculations and we don't really have to get a lot more sophisticated. As you will see here in just a moment, consumption-based planning is based on the assessment of three very important things. We have the concept of uh, having a reorder point We have the concept of safety stock, and we have the concept of replenishment lead time. And it's all very, very logical, I think, as to how this is done, but we'll work through the mechanics of it so that you will understand how the computer goes about doing that calculation. So this is one way that materials can can be planned. The second way that materials can be planned is through the MRP process and we'll talk about the MRP process and flesh it out in a little bit more detail. We could undoubtedly spend several weeks talking about all of the facets of MRP, but there would not be a lot of utility in that. Realize that when a company begins the process of configuring MRP, there are a lot of questions for them to consider as far as how they actually want things to work. a third alternative that we have is kind of almost a, a compromise or a hybrid solution that has elements of both consumption-based planning and materials requirement planning and it's called Master Production Schedule or, or MPS. And so we will talk about each of those three things, add to our discussion a couple of final topics and, and then we'll be done. For the semester, but being able to differentiate among these three and understanding the calculations is definitely something we want to make sure that that we have nailed down. This diagram from your textbook is is really, if you understand this diagram, you understand um, the idea behind consumption-based planning. Perhaps the one thing that is unfortunate about this diagram is, is that your textbook is not in color, so it's often hard to figure out exactly what's going on here. So uh, let's see if my uh, device will cooperate here, and let me turn my pen different colors, and we will uh, try and solve the issue of your uh, monochromatic textbook. And so I'm going to turn to a light blue, too much coordinates with the colors that are already there. So let me try red. Okay, this line right here that I am tracing along is often referred to as a, as a sawtooth line and you can imagine if this continued on into the into the future you see this diagonal line vertical line diagonal line vertical line diagonal line vertical line and so if you kind of looked at it you could envision this this sawtooth kind of shape to the line i've sometimes heard people refer to it as a sawtooth curve which kind of doesn't make sense because it's not a curve but the important word there is is sawtooth as a way of describing that. Well let's understand first of all what's going on here. What's going on here is I have inventory that over time is being consumed and then I have a shipment coming in and so that's the result of this vertical spike here and then I have inventory being consumed and then I have a, a shipment coming in. When I say shipment, here I'm talking about a shipment from my supplier but we could also be using this in the context of things that we make for our own use. And so this could be a shipment from an internal source production or inventory transfer or or whatever have you. So the shape of this line is very significant. The our inventory level is represented here by the numbers that would equate with the the vertical axis position. The first point that we will talk about of the three is the concept of safety stock. Safety stock is an inventory level that we never want to dip below But because this is not exactly a tightly controlled process, we give ourselves a bit of a cushion here. So hypothetically, um, the idea is that we might set a safety stock of 5,000 units and the idea here might be that if our supplier is one day late on delivering something, or for some reason we have high demand beyond what we expected, we might actually see that dip down into 3,000 units or 2,000 units, but we certainly never want to see that get to zero. So our safety stock level represents a number larger than zero, but not an overly high number Um, but something that gives us a bit of a cushion now safety stock is is really the level here Uh, it, it dictates almost everything else that's going on here the next thing that we have to consider is okay from the time that we place an order with our supplier until they deliver how long is that that's our replenishment lead time and so let's assume in this example that we're talking about a replenishment lead time of three days this is one reason why in our material master we keep track of how long it takes for us to get a resupply so if you think about this just very logically I have this downward sloping line representing consumption the idea here is that if I never want my cushion to get below my safety stock level and it takes me three days to get an order in that at at this point that's represented by B here this is when I am placing my order so I'm placing my order but then after I place the order I continue to consume products i continue to sell them or use them in manufacturing but just about the time my actual inventory gets to the safety stock level my supplier makes a delivery and shoots me back up to my my desired my desired uh, inventory level and so we have the safety stock level we have the reorder date this is called reorder date here notice over here it's called reorder point Uh, you know same concept just terms for this and obviously the question here is going to be uh, okay how much do i i order and so this is based on the overall slope of the line and how many units I I would like to have as my overall quantity. So let's just say hypothetically that I I want to bring my inventory level each time back up to twenty-five thousand units, and so we get here to the reorder point date, and at this point we have, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, 9,000 units in stock, so we would place an order for how many units would we place an order for? We would place an order here for 20,000 units because we would say, okay, we need to get this gap back up here from our safety stock level up to our desired replenishment point. Now, what we would, of course, be doing over time is, is using the system to help us keep track of the slope of this line. You know, if if we find out, you know, if we look at a situation and we say, wow, we're at a point now where it looks like um, we've consumed far more than we would expect, and I realize at this point the line wouldn't look like this, but if we get to a particular point here, you know, the idea would be, all right, so uh, this is 25,000 units, which is where we build back up to. Let's assume, to do our math here, that we are consuming, I want to make the numbers here kind of nice here. We're consuming 5,000, that's that's too high a number. Let, let me put some different numbers here. Let's make this 50,000 units and we are consuming, the slope of this line is we are we are using 5,000 units a day, okay? Now, you, you can just kind of work through this logically without me giving you a formula At what inventory level do I need to place an order? Okay, I have a vote for 20,000. Before we explain that, does anybody have a different number they would like to suggest? All right, the key is we said the lead time here is going to be three days. Okay, so. At whatever point I place the order, we're going to have three more days of consumption after that. So if you think about it, here I have 5,000 units. If I back up three days, one day I would add 5,000 units to this. I would have, you know, this day right here would be me having 10,000 units. I back up another day, this is me having 15,000 units. I back up another day, and this is me having 20,000 units. And so at at this point here, let me get rid of this over here. So when I get to 20,000 units, if I place my order, then I can go my next three days know that my safety stock is going to protect me and then the order is going to come back in and bring me up to my replenishment point. Did you say 20,000 or 25,000? Okay, so 20,000, which is what looks like to me to be the correct answer here. All right, now the nice thing about this is I tell the computer my replenishment lead time or More particularly, I I let the computer keep track of that in regards to my relationship with various suppliers. I specify a safety stock. And then at that point, I have the computer keep track of my consumption line and push the ordering of this off onto the system. But if we wanted to play computer on this, we we clearly could do this. So what's going to happen here is the computer is essentially just waiting to hit a number that represents, okay, it's time for me to place an order. And based on what we just looked at, when the computer hits 20,000 in inventory, it knows it's time to place an order with my supplier. This is consumption-based planning. So the really nice thing about this is we just have to, we, the computer, just has to keep up with inventory levels. And as long as it has accurate inventory levels and accurate information about replenishment time, then we never run out. Now the problem becomes, of course, if I have an unreliable supplier and I place an order and it actually takes them five or six days to deliver, uh, I might have a problem. And so that could influence the safety stock level that I set To give myself protection. And so that's what we're looking at here as well, a freak snowstorm hits, the supplier is delayed a day in getting us the order. Um, Do we have enough backup inventory to protect ourselves? Any questions about this? This is consumption-based planning. This is one way that we can have the system do our ordering for us. Yes? I think it would really depend upon the materials r- as opposed to the strategy, but I'm kind of just thinking through this for the first time. Um, I think the I think the key factor here that's going to influence how house, she, house sheep how steep or shallow the line is, is really going to be very much driven by our replenishment lead time. You know, if I can contact a supplier and have replenishment tomorrow, then that's going to um, affect this much more dramatically, it, it seems to me, I'm just thinking about this for the first time, than if I had to account for like a 10 day replenishment time because then I would have to be a little bit more conservative in, in my planning overall here. Other comments or questions? Yes, sir. What action the company take if inventory leverage the safety stock? Well, we would use the safety stock. The safety stock is there to provide us a buffer. And we would continue to use it up un- until we got to zero. And when we get to zero, at that point, we hopefully already have placed an order with our supplier. We might have been on the phone with our supplier um, if we saw this coming, saying, hey, can you get this to us sooner, Uh, you know, trying to handle the logistics of that. But. there, there's this issue that you face in business that, that kind of goes beyond the technical scope of this, which is really important, which is this issue of, of, of running out. And I alluded to this previously, but let's talk about it here for just a second. Um, if you, and I think I used the example before of McDonald's, if you were a manager for McDonald's and you ran out of hamburger patties or you ran out of french fries, If you did that more than once or even if you did it once that might imperil you keeping your job because those are critical items that you just never ever want to run out of but there's also the idea that if you never run out of anything you may be keeping too high an inventory level because let's face it if you said to me okay you're in charge of a given retailer and if you ever run out of stuff you're going to get fired well I can pretty much make sure we never run out of stuff just by having way too much stuff on hand and that introduces carrying costs and storage issues and other things of that sort so if you were not the manager for McDonald's but the manager of a Walmart it would be expected that from time to time you would run out of products. And as long as they're not critical products, and as long as you can replenish them in a fairly short period of time, that's actually a good thing as opposed to a bad thing because it demonstrates that you're not carrying too much inventory. So, so there's a real balance here. If we had an item that was really, really, really critical we might not plan it using consumption-based planning. Uh, we would perhaps use MRP or something that gives us a little bit more control here. But to your general question, you know, when I hit safety stock, I keep using it, and when I'm out, I'm out, but I certainly make every effort to replenish it as quickly as I can. You know, I know in the restaurant business, that's where sometimes you send a person and a car over to an affiliate, business to borrow stuff from them until the truck comes in or or things like that. The reason why we need that is because we have imperfect ability to predict the future. You know we we say that typically we sell 5,000 units a day but maybe something happens that has prompted people to buy at a higher rate than we expected. Um, Maybe the item in question here is umbrellas and we've had an unusually wet week where it's rained a lot and so more people have have bought umbrellas than typically. So because we don't know exactly how this it's not like you know we sell umbrellas and want the 5000 umbrellas sold in a given day we say nope. Nobody else can buy umbrellas. You know, we keep selling them, and so it could be that the next day we sell six thousand, and then day after that we sell seven thousand, and so we're going to have to dip into our safety stock. It kind of gives us that prediction, that protection. But it's all about we can't perfectly predict the future, so safety stock gives us that protection there. Make sense? Okay. Was there a Somebody over here had like a hand up or something I thought I saw. Okay, yeah. Because um, you said like in real business you go borrow. Like at work, we are almost out of something. You go, you go borrow it from another store. Would you have to do something special with the system to account for that? Or would it just kind of be a how we do it where we just give it back as soon as we get it? That, and I mean... Know, like this this becomes a distinction between what kind of business we're talking about and how formal things are. You know, if it's a PALS and we're talking about, we're about to run out of American cheese and so we go and borrow a sleeve of cheese from a neighbor restaurant, sometimes you even do it with like a restaurant that's not an affiliate of your same company, just you know people that work there. Um, and, and so a lot of times you do that informally. You know, if we're a chemical company and we're talking about needing a tanker of crude oil, then probably we need to be a little bit more formal about that. You know, it, I think it, it's hard to generalize. It probably depends on whether we're talking about $20 worth of stuff or $10,000 worth of stuff. Other questions or comments? Mm-hmm. If you offered on the assumption that over time it doesn't shift the in size, then it wouldn't start up like the road, right there about nine? Because, yeah. And that would be, I guess, where we get back Yeah, I mean, it tends to, it looks like lines, but yeah, I mean, a line and a curve or, you know, a curve, a line is kind of a curve, but it's a curve with no curve to it, you know, so. I guess that makes sense, we'll go with it, all right. Alright, now, next thing. So this was consumption-based planning. Now we get into the other alternatives that we have. And some of this seems kind of tricky and can motivate questions that might seem kind of tricky. But if you take it down to its most elemental level and just think about it logically, it should actually be something that's that's pretty straightforward we're going to talk about independent and dependent demand and we're talking about this in the context of materials so we're talking about independent and dependent demand for materials independent demand independent demand comes from our customers so independent demand is externally derived. And this goes back to our example that we've been working through here. We sell 5,000, I don't know if we said what products we're representing on the last picture we were looking at, but we sell 5,000 coats a day, we sell 10,000 hamburgers a day. What we're talking about in every one of those situations is customers are coming to our establishment and, and making a purchase. That is independent demand. Independent demand is a critical metric for us in regards to finished goods and trading goods. Why? Those are the things that we actually sell to customers. If you think about it, we don't sell raw materials, we don't sell semi-finished goods, at least not to end customers. And so independent demand comes to us from our customers and is is focused on finished goods and, and trading goods. This is calculated one of two different ways. It's calculated based on actual sales or it's calculated based on forecasted sales. Now, what determines which of these two numbers I use or which of these two techniques I used, actual sales or forecasted sales? What's the determining factor here? What's that? Uh there's an element of time to this, but it's not the primary consideration here. I thought I heard somebody else saying something else. Actual sales is well, that's the question though. It's calculated based on actual sales. So, I don't understand. Make to stock versus make to order, okay? So, Forecasted sales is what we focus on if we're make to stock. Actual sales is what we focus on if we're make to order. Okay, So independent demand is something that we have to quantify. And if we are a company that only makes stuff in response to actual customer orders, then our calculation is based on those orders. If we are a company that makes things based on anticipated orders, then we have to do that based on forecasted sales. Now, there are two important terms for us to introduce, and this is where this can, can get a little bit confusing. Actual sales orders. We'll use the term Customer Independent Requirements or CIRs. So the equivalent of this might be that we've gotten a purchase order from a customer. That's an actual sales order. So I know I have to fulfill that. That is a customer independent requirement. That is not something that I'm forecasting or something that I am hoping for. That's an order that I actually have in hand that is a confirmed sale. That is a customer independent requirement. There are also times when I try to calculate the demand or forecast the demand predict the demand whatever term you want to use those are planned independent requirements now of course i hope that those planned independent requirements will be accurate and will actually turn into customer orders But of course, there's an element here of of forecasting that's going to go into this. So we're going to continue fleshing this out further, but when we talk about CIRs, customer independent requirements, those are actual orders that I have from customers that I have not yet fulfilled, and so I have to incorporate them into my planning. The second scenario, the, the planned independent requirements, uh, may be based on my sales forecast. And once again, if you think back to your experience with ERP SIM, you were a make-to-stock company. Everything that you did in your planning was this right here, planned independent requirements, because you didn't know about orders coming in from customers in the future. This is independent demand. It's what we focus on with finished goods and trading goods. Dependent demand. This is dependent on the demand for another material. I will often refer to this as, and and I'm not unique in this, but I often like to think of this as derived demand. The idea here is this is typically what we would think of as our demand for our semi-finished goods, our raw materials, the items that we use as components in making finished goods and trading goods. And once again, if you think back to your experience with ERP Sim, you put in a forecast and said, we expect to sell 150,000 boxes of blueberry muesli. That's independent demand. Specifically, that's a planned independent requirement. You then use the system to have that figure out, okay, how many blueberries do we need? How many boxes do we need? How many oats do we need? Those are going to be calculated elements based on your independent demands. So we focus on independent demand and push the calculation of the dependent demand onto the system. And the reason why I use the term derived demand is it's a calculation. We tell the system how we want it to do the calculation, but it takes our independent demand numbers and uses them in doing the calculation. Question about this so far? All right. Consumption planning. You can have a strategy that involves both PIRs and CIRs, okay? So you might say, what what are we talking about here? Well, let's assume that we are a company that of course takes orders from customers anytime they want to place it with us. And we are approaching the Christmas season with with uh, with a breakneck speed here. And so let's put ourselves in the shoes of Mattel, which I think has two T's in it, but I'm not sure. Um, one of the products that Mattel makes is is Barbie dolls, okay? Now I have no idea as to whether or not Barbies are popular or not popular this year or whatever have you, but the Mattel company got some orders for Barbie dolls months ago from companies like Toys R Us and Amazon and other companies that were expecting to have a significant demand for this product. So Mattel might have received an order from Toys R Us for 2.5 million Barbies to be delivered uh, November 1st, okay? We might've gotten that order in February. So what is that? Well, that's an actual order from an actual customer. That's a CIR. So even if we consider ourselves normally to be a make-to-stock company, we're going to factor this into our planning, that we have this order. But of course, we're also going to get orders from smaller companies that aren't going to give us months and months of lead time, so we still do some sales forecasting. So you can very easily envision a situation where we think about, okay, here's all the orders we actually have. Now let's think about orders that we expect to get. And so we have the customer independent requirements and the plan independent requirements that are both part of our planning process. So here's the rule that sounds really tricky, but I think when you think about the sequence here becomes very, very logical. CIRs consume PIRs. What in the world does that mean? CIRs, Customer Independent Requirements consume planned independent requirements. This table comes from your your textbook, okay? So, here's the idea. Example 1. We sit down And we have planned independent requirements. We put together a plan that we said we were gonna sell 50 units. And then customer orders started coming in, and lo and behold, we actually have orders for 60 units. Okay? So if you think about what's going to happen here, and, and forget about everything on the right side of the table. If you were in charge of the factory, and I don't know why I'm holding my hand over it because you can still see it, but I'm covering up the right side of the table here with my hand, so do that with your hand or whatever, okay? So you're in charge of the plant. How many example one products are you going to make? Let's go through the scenario again because I don't think the, the answer should be that hard to figure out. I planned to sell 50. I look in my inbox. I have orders sitting there for 60. How many are you going to make? Yeah, six. 60, right? You know, I, I thought I only needed to make 50, but I was wrong. I have orders for 60. So I make 60. Yes? How far away are these like? Are elections happening Time horizon is kind of however I do planning in my company. So that can be a day, a month, it, whatever would be relevant in the way we, we make our decisions here. The key thing, all right, so, so I, I don't know that we got 100% response to that, so l- let me just walk through the logic here once again. I thought I was going to need to make 50 to satisfy the planned independent requirements. But I look at the actual orders I have from customers, and I have orders for 60. So how many do I really need to make? My plan was wrong. I, I need to make 60. So I make 60, and all 60 of those units are going to be used to fulfill these customer orders. And I don't have any extra units at this point left for anything that wasn't an actual customer order. Scenario two. I expect to need 50 units. I'm making a plan and my plan says that I, I, I expect orders for 50. I have orders in hand, firm orders as of right now from customers for 40 units. The whole point of this that CIRs consume, PIRs, is that I don't add these two numbers together and say I need to make 90. What I do is I look at the CIR number, and if it's smaller, I say, okay, I thought I was gonna need 50, I have firm orders for 40, life is good, I'll make 50, I'll use 40 of those to confirm the orders I have on hand, and then I have 10 left over for other orders that are going to come in. In this, in example one situation, I look at this and I say, you know, my plan wasn't sufficient, so I, I'm going to have to take all of the units and I'll, I'll try if I can adjust production and make 60 and I'll divert those and use those to fulfill these orders that I have in hand and I'm not going to have any leftover for my, my planned independent requirements. Yes, sir. This, I mean, your question is actually getting to the very next thing we're going to talk about. Because, and when I talked through this a moment ago, I said, well, I had planned orders for 50, but my actual orders are 60, so I need to make 60. That's what I just said. But maybe... I don't have the ability to do that. You know, Maybe I've already told everybody what to do and our manufacturing is planned out for the next however long, and so now I, I have this situation where I actually have more orders on hand than I am actually going to be able to cover with production. Absolutely. I mean, those, that's the real-world dilemma that I face in this situation, potentially, which is why I might have safety stock of some things. You know, one of the things that happened in ERP sim is your MRP was configured to only pull in exactly what you needed of things. We can incorporate the concept of safety stock in that as well and say, when you pull stuff in, I'll also pull in a buffer and bring in extra stuff in case I need to make a last-minute change. You know, that would have been nice probably for some of you to have that in the way things worked in the context of your team. Now, the other part of this is, and this is where this potentially gets kind of tricky, is this can be planned as forward, backward, or half and half. I can tell you if any of you ever at any point in the future decide that you want to uh, take the course for and study and take the SAP Terp 10 they seem to have unless they've changed the test a a demented intent to ask a lot of questions about this because it, it can be kind of confusing and so for whatever reason they they love asking lots of questions about this I will hit you with some questions but I'm not going to hit you with like 20 questions about this like like sometimes they do okay so what is going on here this is a picture from your textbook if we look down here at the bottom the dark blue boxes show customer independent requirements uh, below the line the consumption of planned independent requirements are shown above the line. Light blue blocks are planned independent requirements. I mean this is kinda like really confusing in the way that this chart is is presented here, but, but let's try and figure out if, if, if we can make sense of this. Alright, so let's look at mode. There, there are three different modes here. Mode one is called backwards planning. So. In mode one, I have a customer independent requirement that has come in for 60 units. And I have to, let's assume, make 60 units to fulfill those requirements. And let's further assume that in my factory I have the ability to make 40 units a day. So I'm putting together a a production plan. So I go back one day, and i plan to make 40 units to satisfy this customer independent requirement i go back another day and i decide to make 40 units 20 of which are going to be used to fulfill this customer independent requirement and then 20 of which are just going to be used for planned independent requirements which i'm hoping will materialize at some point in the future you know say like maybe right here but the idea here is that when I ask the system to assess this what the system's going to do is it's going to look backwards and so what it might have actually seen is that let's just say this is day one day two day three and so on the system I might have put into the system that on day one I have planned independent requirements, I'm gonna make 40. And then on day two, I, I have planned independent requirements and I'm gonna make another 40. And then it got this order in from the customer for 60 units. And it said, okay, am I going to be able to satisfy that? And it said, sure, I can take these 40 units and I can put it towards this and I can take 20 of these and put it towards this, and I'm still going to have 20 units left over. That's what this is showing. And the whole idea here is that when I do backwards planning, I look at this going back in time to try and assess whether I'm going to be able to fulfill this order. Questions? Yes, sir. This is the same product here, so not, not really. Um, yeah, no, I don't think it's related to that really. There are other quite. Yes, sir. Okay, so that's a good question, and and I, I started here my number one, two, three, four, and so on, uh, let's assume there's actually day zero and negative one and negative two and negative three, okay? We might be here on day negative three, okay? And so it knows that it has to ship this order out to this customer, it looks like we'll assume here on you know, the end of day two. So what this, what this relates to is in planning also is the concept we talked about before with available to promise. You know, Can I promise this customer that they're going to get 60 units? And I can say, yeah, I can get them 60 units because I can make 40 of them on day two and then I can take 40 or 20 of them from day one and I can promise those units to this customer. So it's just gonna work backwards. Where I am here, you know, we could be on day zero, we could be on day one, we could be on day negative three, but we, we couldn't be, you know, somewhere to the right of day two in this scenario. <coughs> yes? Is this just for planning purposes or does this actually work with a for the system kind of costing? It may have a relationship with costing, but we are totally focused on planning. Okay, so that's scenario one. Scenario, and, and the naming here is kind of funny. We have mode one, and we have mode three. What is mode three? Mode three is forward consumption. Okay, so let's stick with our same days here that I have at the top. I, I now have this order that came in from the customer for 60 units. And now I say to myself, okay, I don't have any historic inventory to give them. But what I can do is on day three, I can make 40 units. And on day four, I'm going to make 40 units as well. And I'm going to allocate 20 of them to go to this customer's order. And then these other 20, those are just going to be Planned independent requirements that I'm going to hope to sell to another customer in the future. So in this scenario, um, instead of looking at this backwards looking, I look at fulfilling customer orders out of future production. So here the focus is on past production, or, or meaning production that happens before the point in time where I have the customer independent requirement. In this scenario here I I have the customer independent requirement and I account for that in in future production. This is mode three but more important than that it's, it's forward consumption planning. Mode two and four and it's called mode two slash four. Mode two and four is backward And forward consumption planning and so here's what the system's gonna do it's gonna start with this same customer independent requirement and it's gonna begin by looking backwards and it's gonna say oh look I can grab these 40 units right here nobody else has spoken for them and so I'm going to count those towards my customer independent requirement And then it discovers that there's nothing else left moving backwards that it can grab a hold of because everything else is already allocated or sold to other customers. So after it grabs anything that's available in the past, now it looks moving forward and says, okay, I'm also going to grab these right here. Now let me try and give you a scenario that would make sense in the context of ERP Sim you currently have on hand 25,000 units of blueberry muesli a customer comes to you with an order for 45,000 now you don't actually ship that out until you can fulfill their entire order but what you might say to yourself is okay i need to fulfill that order for 45,000 units I'll take the 25,000 I already have and put it towards that. So I need to make 20,000 more units. And once I make 20,000 more units, I I can ship this out. So you're taking inventory you already have that you did that was a planned independent requirement. It's just left over because nobody else already bought it. And then you're going to use that towards the customer independent requirement. And then moving forward, you're going to account for this order that you have to fulfill in your forward-looking production plan. What all of this illustrates, though, is this idea that customer independent requirements consume planned independent requirements you know I made in my example I made these 25,000 units here based on a forecast that was a planned independent requirement but I got a customer order so I'm going to give that customer those units that that's why they're there so my customer independent requirement is going to consume my planned independent requirement and then I'm going to have to account for the difference by, in this case, future production runs. Admittedly, it's kind of confusing. The good thing about this is, this is something we push off onto the system. You know, and imagine what your life would have looked like in ERP-SIM if you had the ability to plan your independent requirements. And, and ERP-SIM is a wonder, wonderful example of this. Why would you still want to have planned independent requirements, even though you'd also be taking customer orders like I just described here? What do, what, what's the merit of this? What do planned independent requirements allow me to do? What's one of the things that was a key factor in achieving success in ERP-SIM? What did you wanna do in regards to materials management? You want to have inventory but there was also there was a, 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 a another key factor there And it's what's being illustrated here, it's, it's kind of the, the whole point of this What? Well let's think about it. you don't really want to You don't ever really wa- want to make more than you need Right. I mean, you wanna. In a perfect world, you'd make exactly what you needed, and everything would go out on time, and everything would be perfectly synchronized. You know, in a perfect world, that's the way it would work. We're not in a perfect world, um, but what? What was your vehicle for being able to fulfill customer orders? I really want you guys to give me the answer as opposed to me telling it to you. So I've got to figure out a better way to ask this question apparently. What did you use planned independent requirements to do? Or like the MRP process? You used in the MRP process, but go with the first thing that you said, which was what? Production. Okay, what was your primary goal in production? to always have your factory be making stuff. We never want to say, oh, we don't have any customer orders, let's just all go out back and play basketball. You don't want your employees doing that. You always want your people making stuff. So what you're doing here is you're saying, okay, we have these customer orders we have to make sure we take care of, but, Because we don't know all the orders that will come in in the future and we want to keep our factory busy we're going to use planned orders as well and we're going to use those to forecast the future so my scenario for you is imagine how different ERP sim would have been if you could have First of all, continue to operate the way that you always had, but you could also accept orders for customers kind of on spec for the future. And you could have an order placed with your company for 45,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, even though you didn't have that on hand when you made the sale, but you were told, okay, you have to have this on hand by quarter three, day ten. You know, imagine how that would have played out then as you were wanting to keep your factory busy, you were fulfilling a lot of orders, but you also now had this list of things that you had to fulfill in the future based on orders that were placed by companies. Okay, that's what a real-world scenario would look like because we have orders coming in that we have to fulfill in the future, but we don't wanna just make things for that purpose. We also wanna use our additional production capability to do, to do other things, okay? Questions? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what's going to happen here. And, and that's a good point. It's going to go out and it's going to lock in reservations for things. And that's why, you know, and, and that's why it's very, very critical that everybody in your organization uh, is on board with using the system the way they're supposed to. You know, the hypothetical scenario is there's, there's 10 Malibu Barbies sitting over there in the corner that we have an order for a customer for and he just hasn't picked it up yet. And so that would be kind of like the system placing a reservation on it. We have to honor that reservation and not when somebody comes in and says, ooh, I want those Malibu Barbies, we sell it to them and, and now we're unable to fulfill that order. You know? So you actually might have inventory on hand but it's all, it's all reserved, and so you have to use that for those reservations and, and not for other things that, that might come up. I might have shared this with you previously, but it's it's a good point to reiterate this as well. In one of the use cases related to SAP HANA, SAP illustrates the idea of you have a reservation for a product from like a marginal customer, and you might want to undo that reservation and give those goods to a really, really good customer if they present themselves to you, which is kind of a really different way of looking at things. Than, than you're typically encouraged to do, but it is perhaps a real-world uh, use case. All right, so let's forge ahead and you know look back through this in your notes, read about it in your textbook or such. If there's still elements of this that you're fuzzy on, but but do make sure you you understand this uh, moving forward. MRP versus MPS. Okay, so let's let's dig into a few more things here. MRP materials requirement planning. This is what you did in ERP-SIM, okay, so you have experience with this. What MRP does is it derives the dependent requirements for materials based on the independent requirements. So you put in your sales forecast and it does what is typically called bomb explosion, which Uh, I often joke about not a term you want to use around airports or TSA personnel in in general, but a key element in MRP is is bill of material explosion. And what MRP is going to do is it's going to iterate through all of the bills of material referenced in in planning. And so in a real-world organization, This could take an extensive period of time. Remember, with ERP SIM, when you ran MRP, you would like hit the button and a screen would pop up and say, confirm all of your settings. And then you'd hit enter again and a dialog box would pop up and say, are you really sure you want to do this? And you had to hit enter a third time before it actually did it. That's because this can take a really, really long period of time. And and when when I say a really long period of time, this is something that a lot of companies will run overnight you because the MRP run will take seven or eight hours. And I have heard of in some companies, it taking days for an MRP run to actually happen. It just depends on how many products we have and how much has to be calculated. But the key thing that's going to happen with MRP is it's going to iterate through everything. It's gonna say, all right, you have an independent requirement for 100,000 units, that means you need 80,000 of this, then you need 70,000 of this, and it's gonna go through and then it's gonna say, okay, for you to have 80,000 of this, it's gonna explode another bill of material. And if you think about it like a tree, it's gonna keep exploding bills of material until it reaches the the end of the tree and, and make sure that everything is totally accounted for. That's what MRP does. The next one is going to strike you as odd, I think. MPS, master production scheduling. Master production scheduling is a different take on this. And what I started to draw up here is this idea that you say you need a hundred thousand units. Well that means that you actually need these components. And this item right here also has a bill of material, and it has three things in it. And then this item right here also has a bill of material. So this tree could be very, very, very deep just depending upon the items that we're actually planning here. MRP is going to go through this entire tree, which is why this takes a really long time. Master production scheduling, the difference is this it is only going to go down one level. So it's going to take your independent requirement and it's going to explode the bill of material for that item and figure out this need right here. And then it's done. Now you might say, hold on a second. what about all the other stuff below it on the tree? Well, first of all, why would we only explode one level instead of traversing the whole tree? Well, when you reach the node, like, like say so you're the and reach the node, the child, it's going to have everything that you need already. I mean, it's already a finished thing. Okay. Okay. So that could be the case. Okay. Uh, But let's assume we have a really deep tree, like I've illustrated here. Why would we only explode one level? And I told you why we might do this in my explanation of MRP. What's the trade-off? What does this save us? Time. Okay. An MRP run is very computationally intense. So what we're going to do here is we're not going to explode, 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 explode and traverse our way down the whole tree. We're going to only explode the first level of the items in the bill of material. Now at that point you might be saying, okay, so what about all of the stuff that I would have to account for that is down here at the bottom of the tree? So let's see if you can figure this out. Where is this stuff gonna come from? Where could it come from? And I'll give you a hint, we've talked about it today. Okay, this could all be handled through consumption-based planning. And in fact, that's a typical way this is gonna happen. Okay, so what we're gonna do is our master production schedule, we're gonna list all the stuff that, that we need to make. And we're going to tell the system to go through and look at critical finished goods, and look at those items, and explode one level of the bill of material and create a list of everything that we need, okay? Now there's other stuff that we might need that would be things that would be further down the tree if we kept exploding bills of material, but we're not going to worry about those because one way we could handle them is we just keep all that stuff on stock based on, based on consumption-based planning. It would be kind of like, and some of this breaks down with, um, with um, ERP-SIM, but let's assume that there are things that you actually needed to make your, your muesli that um, you never had to worry about, like you have to glue the boxes shut, so there needs to be glue, and you need to, um, when you're drying the blueberries, you have to sprinkle pectin on them so there actually needs to be pectin. Well, we would just make sure we always had glue and we always had pectin in stock, and so MRP didn't even consider that because we always keep that stuff on hand and so we just use it as we need it. And when we're running low, we reorder it. So we tell the system, don't bother planning that stuff Just focus on getting me enough blueberries and strawberries and wheat and oats, and then the other stuff don't worry about. You know, imagine you ran a bicycle shop. You would order handlebars and seats and stuff like that. And, and you would say, OK, next month I need to order 12 seats. And next month I need 22 handlebars. And you'd be very particular about that. But nuts and bolts, you just got a ton of nuts and bolts of all different sizes and types. And when you're running low of a particular kind of bolts, you order more. But it's not like you say, OK, next month I'm going to need 22 bolts. You just buy bolts and have them on hand and use them as you need them that's what we do with master production scheduling now what we might do is we might do an MPS run which by the way you did in your lab work you might do an MPS run just to see how things are going to shake out and kind of use it for initial planning purposes while you're still you know putting together your production scheduling and and thinking about your future needs and so on and then once you have your quantities locked down and your forecasts locked down and all those other things locked down then you might do an MP an MRP run but the idea here is MPS allows us a kind of a compromise here it allows us to do a little bit of planning without all of the calculation intensity that goes with a full MRP run okay this next slide is a picture from your textbook that illustrates this okay we have a finished good that finished good has a bill of material The bill of material says it takes this semi-finished good and it takes this semi-finished good and it takes this raw material. MRP is gonna say, oh look this semi-finished good has a bill of material. I need to explode it. And then it's gonna say, oh look this semi-finished good has a bill of material. I'm gonna explode it. And it's going to keep exploding bills of material until there are no more bills of material to explode. MRP is going to walk the entire tree, MPS stops right here and it essentially gives you a list that says, uh, yeah, you need 50,000 of these and 30,000 of these and 20,000 of these. And it hasn't told you, you know, how many bolts that means and and how many grips that is. And it hasn't given you all of those details. But it has at least given you a big picture overview. So that's the distinction here. MPS, we just do one level of explosion. MRP, we do full explosion. Now, the point of this right here executed for critical finished goods, let me explain that further. What we might actually do is there might be some products that we make. And if we think of this in terms of product groups, items in product group A are really, really important. So we do a full MRP run on those items. But then we have other products that we'll put here in product group B, and we plan them using MPS because they're not that important to us. If we run out of them occasionally, that's fine, but we can handle this through normal consumption-based planning and normal inventory control methods, but we don't have to plan them in as much detail as, as these guys right here. That's the idea. Questions? We are getting close to the end, I just wanna make sure we have enough time here. Um, this picture in your slide just kinda of goes through what, what I think we already know at this point, which is um, the fact that you know, we're talking about, this is where we're talking about exploding independent requirements to dependent requirements, and, and you know, here's a raw material that we need, and so we issue a purchase requisition and MRP figures out we need a semi-finished good, and semi-finished goods are things that we make instead of buying. And so the MRP run is gonna calculate that for us. And that's also something that you didn't have to do in ERP-SIM. In ERP-SIM, you made blueberry muesli. Imagine if it worked like this. Imagine if you put in a planned order Um, for our sales forecast for 50,000 units of blueberry muesli and you ran MRP and it said, okay, in order for you to make 50,000 boxes of blueberry muesli, first you need to toast uh, 2,500 kilograms of blueberries. And so you had to actually make something as an intermediate thing before you could actually make the blueberry muesli itself. That's the idea here. MRP is going to place orders for things just like you guys are used to based on your previous experience. But if if it explodes a bill of material runs into a semi-finished good that we make, instead of it ordering that, it's gonna queue up planned orders for those items to be produced as well. So once again, that's why this walking of this tree can become really, really quite time-consuming for it to do. This right here is every stuff we've talked about before, so I'm just going to skip that slide. This right here is a, a picture from your textbook of the material planning process that I think just put in as a way of summarizing things that, that we have talked about, so I don't really have anything new to observe here. I, I think this is a good point for us to make, which is, so how often do, do companies do this? And the answer to that is kind of whenever they feel the need to. You know, some companies will sit down and make an annual plan this year we plan on selling this many units and they they think of it on an annual basis and then they be they look at things like okay we know based on seasonality that we're going to sell 10% of it in the month of january and 5% in february and so they take their annual forecast they apply a seasonal model to it they know what their monthly need is going to be and it and they just kind of think of it on that basis but we could plan much more frequently. You know, companies will commonly think in terms of a five-year plan. That's just kind of, you know, we realize at this point that's just very blue sky numbers. But why would a company perhaps need to think in terms of a five-year uh, plan for manufacturing? What could that help us figure out? Why would we need to, you know, let's put ourselves in the shoes of, Of Nissan and Nissan sits down and they say okay let's think about Nissan for the next five years and we talk about what we think the future is going to be like you know people won't have flying cars yet but if you really were worked at Nissan and somebody said to you talk to me about cars five years from now what would be something that probably would come up in cars for the future what's that selling. selling cars but yeah what 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 are some things going on right now in the car market better that mileage. better mileage and what's a big thing that's driving that right now self driving that's going to be a thing but what's that hybrid. electric okay as time goes by there's an expectation that more and more hybrid cars and electric cars are going to be out there so if you're Nissan you can't put up a manufacturing plant in like 2 weeks Okay, so sometimes you have to sit down and think about, okay, over the next five years, we really think that electric cars are gonna be more of a thing. We need to build another electric car plant. And where are we gonna put it? And so sometimes you think in terms of planning five and 10 years out, but when you do that, you're not talking about specific numbers, you're talking about just kind of general trends and general numbers. On a yearly basis, you could put together decent numbers But you might need to revisit it periodically, like unexpected economic situations occur, the price of gas shoots to $20 a gallon. Well now all of a sudden, more people are interested in electronic and electric cars than they were previously. And so anytime things like that happen, now we need to sit down and, and we need to revisit all of this. And the great thing about this is, is we can push this onto the computer, and we can have lots of different versions of the plan. You know, we could have a version of, you know, we could essentially sit down and say, this is the way we think 2016 is going to look, and, and here's that plan, and we'll call that Plan A. But then we also have Plan B and Plan C and Plan D, which are other plans that represent other realities. You know, Plan A is the way we think things are gonna be. Let's stick with our Nissan example. Plan B is what life is gonna look like if gas prices go up by 25% or more. Plan C is what's going to happen if all of a sudden, I don't know what would be something that would happen dramatically that would affect Nissan. Um, You know, self-driving cars become like a thing, and everybody wants a self-driving car, okay? Well, that's what Plan C is going. You know, we can have different versions of these plans (coughs) that we think through in advance, and the, the virtue of this is as things happen, we can say, oh, look, price of gas is going up. Uh, plan B is becoming much more relevant for us now. Let's look back and see if we need to make that our primary plant in, instead. So what companies do is they, they create a sales plan. And, and this is something that you guys did kind of without realizing you were doing it in, in ERP SIM. When you put in sales forecast, you went into a grid that looks similar to what you're seeing here on the screen, and you just put numbers in one column. Well, the reason why there were all those columns there is because what a company will do is they'll put numbers in all of those columns because every one of those columns represents a different month. So you could say in January we expect to sell 25,000 units, in February we expect to sell 50,000 units and so on. You could have populated that entire thing. Now the reason why we don't do that in ERP-SIM is, you know, you play multiple rounds that all occur in the month of October and the entire semester really just spans two months because of our compressed time frame and so it it doesn't work that's why we just put all of our numbers in one column but a real company might load up an entire year's worth of forecasts into this table save it and then run mrp repeatedly and you might have remembered that when you ran mrp particularly if you put all your numbers in the first column as you sold stuff this number went down that was customer independent requirements consuming planned independent requirements and and you were seeing that play out in in that fashion here so this is something that you've done you know you created a sales plan and you use that to help uh create your production plan and and hopefully you went back periodically and evaluated the feasibility of things and and then you made different decisions the big idea is that what companies do is all of this you work backwards you know we need to have something on such and such a date And so in order to have that, you know, we've got to think about, okay, that's when the finished good has to be done. It takes us a week to make the finished good. And so we back up a week. And that finished good has raw materials and semi-finished goods in it. Raw materials I order from a supplier, but I've got to make the semi-finished good. And so that takes me seven days, so I back that up. And this is where, once again, we use the system to just help us make sure that we hit all of our milestones to to accomplish these things. We are about out of time. Let's make this our last, our last, well, we need to do two more slides and then I feel like we've covered everything we need to. This guy right here. There are different instructions you can give to the MRP process to tell it how you want it to do its job. What you did in ERP-SIM was this guy right here, NUPLE, regenerative planning. When you ran MRP, you told the system, throw away all previous plans, take our new sales forecast, and do the MRP run based on that. Regenerative planning plans all MRP-relevant items from scratch and therefore is very, very time-consuming. But you do have other choices here. You could change the processing key to NetPull. NetPull is not going to replan everything. It's going to look at the things that you have put new numbers in for or you have made changes. And for those things that you have made changes, it's going to replan them. But things that you haven't changed, it's not going to replan. So it's not going to throw the old stuff away and start from scratch. It's just going to throw away the stuff it has to throw away, but it's going to keep all the other stuff. So NetPull uh, does this only for materials which have MRP relevant changes in the planning horizon. So if you're running it in January, it's going to look at things that have changed for the month of January, and it's not going to worry about anything else. NETCH is similar in that it's going to only look at things that have changed, but it's going to look at them not just for the planning horizon, but for all time. So if we change something for a particular product, and we only made changes in the month of January, it's going to replan that product for all the months it has data on. So the idea is, new poll, you throw everything away and start over. Net poll, you look at things that have changed in the current planning period and you only redo those things that have had changes in that planning period. Netch is a compromise. Netch, you only plan those things that have changed, but for those things that have changed, you do full replanning of them for for all time periods. The other thing that you can control is what the MRP procedure will output. MRP run, excuse me, MRP one. Creates purchase requisitions. MRP2 creates planned orders. MRP3 creates purchase requisitions and planned orders. Which one of those did you run with ERP-SIM? One, two, or three? Three. When you ran MRP, it created purchase requisitions for raw materials and it created planned orders to guide production. So you ran three, but the idea behind this is, and once again, the reason why we have these options is the more work we ask the system to do, the longer it's gonna take. So we might tell it, you know, do MRP one, do all of the purchase requisitioning that I need, but I'm going to create the planned orders myself. Similarly, MRP2, you say, I, don't worry about purchase requisitions, I don't need those, but give me the planned orders that I need. So you might remember that, that first screen for ERP-SIM, where you had the MRP, you had like all these fields that had like ones and threes and stuff like that in it, that's what this is. On that screen, you had uh, NUPLE, was one of the items that was listed there. And then for the type of MRP run, you had a 3 in that field, and that is it.